This is Judaism Unbound, episode 62, The Geography of Jewish Genius. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofus. And we're here today in the second episode of our series that takes place during the Omer, that period between Passover and Shavuot, that seven-week period, which for our podcast, we're exploring the idea that this seven-week period is the period of Jewish not knowing, that we might observe it as the period of Jewish not knowing, that wandering period between when we were freed from Egyptian slavery and when at Sinai we figured out the next thing. We kind of think that that's the condition of the Jewish people today, and we are excited about taking it seriously and having a podcast that explores that period. That's what our podcast always explores, but we're really trying to emphasize that period of time. We're working on this series with our friends at the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto. Last week, we talked to Zach Bodner and Tova Birnbaum from that JCC about the whole framing of the story in terms of the book of Exodus, the book of Numbers, that whole wandering in the wilderness part of the Bible. We're looking at the mythological landscape of the wilderness as that geography of not knowing. And we're looking at Silicon Valley as this geography of of experimentation and not knowing. And so in the weeks ahead, we're going to be interviewing some great folks from Silicon Valley. But this week, we decided to start with author Eric Weiner, because he wrote two books that we found particularly intriguing. At, at first, we were attracted to his book called The Geography of Genius, where he traveled to different cities that were particularly important in developing new ideas, new technologies, new approaches. And we thought that had a great connection to what we were talking about. And we wondered if he would have thoughts about that. But then we discovered that he also wrote a book called Man Seeks God about his own experience of trying out different ways of, of connecting to religion. And so we thought that the connection between his book, Man Seeks God, and his book, The Geography of Genius, would be a particularly compelling connection to explore in leading off this podcast series. So without further ado, we are so excited to welcome Eric Weiner to Judaism Unbound. Eric, it's great to have you. It's great to be here. Well, we're really excited and grateful that you're with us because when we came up with this kind of high concept notion to look at the period between Passover and Shavuot as this kind of reenactment of the journey through the wilderness and thinking about this era in Jewish history where we are as potentially uh, having value in a holiday or in a seven week experience where we kind of reenact that journey, uh, it really was pretty clear that you were someone that we needed to talk to as kind of uh, one of our guides in that process. Process. We sort of think of it as Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, who came to visit and gave him some key advice at the beginning of the journey, uh, both because you wrote this book about the geography of genius, and we are really kind of looking at the question of whether that mythic geography of the wilderness was kind of the geography in which Judaism was developed in its first form. And then there've been, I think, a lot of other iterations in between. And you also wrote the book, Man Seeks God, which very much was exploring that question of how people in our time can really find ways of connecting to religion, especially when they haven't necessarily had that experience in, in their own lives. I was struck in Judaism, you talked about Svat as this place where the Kabbalistic version of Judaism was kind of developed. And I'm wondering to some extent whether uh, there's that, that whether you didn't, you didn't talk about it in the book, The Geography of Genius, but putting the two together, I'm, I'm thinking about Svat as, as an example of, of the wilderness as, as you uh, experienced it in that book. And just wondering if you could reflect on on, on just what this initial sort of uh, approach makes you think about. Well, you know, I have to be honest, I never made that connection between uh, the, these two books of mine, 
Uh, you know, one is about the search and the geography of genius. I'm searching for uh, the sort of secret sauce, if you will, about what, what's the connection between place and creative genius and why do certain places at certain times uh, produce a, just an inordinate amount of good ideas and brilliant minds. Um, and in Man Seeks God, um, I'm on this uh, sort of much more personal journey looking for a religion that fits me. I should just say up front that for for many years I was, uh, well, for more or less a lapsed Jew, uh, I'm now in the, the process of unlapsing, if that's a word, <laughs> Relapsing. Um, uh, reconnecting uh, with my Jewish roots. That's an old story, I suppose. Um, but just thinking about this now, really, for the first time, I'd have to say that um, in Sfat, so in northern Israel, you know, this has been a center of Kabbalistic teaching uh, ever since the 16th century, the very end of the 15th century, when the, the Jews were expelled from, from Spain and they dispersed Throughout the region, a few landed in uh, you know, landed in North Africa, landed in Jerusalem, and some landed in Sfat, like the Ari and other well-known Kabbalists, and they practiced their particular brand of Jewish spiritualism there. Um, I guess, and in both cases, you have a seeking for something, and in both cases, you have people who are... I want to say disenfranchised, but that's not quite the right word. They're uprooted and they're forced to flee. Either, you know, in the case of the geography of genius, you, you constantly see this theme of people who are uprooted being the most creative, whether it's Freud, also a Jew, of course, who's uprooted from uh, Moravia, where he was born, and finds himself in Vienna, this big bustling city of immigrants, and he thrives there, uh, or Albert Einstein, or all the Jews heading west to Silicon Valley now to find their fortune and their fulfillment. And the same thing happened, I think, in Sfat, but, but it was a kind of, instead of a technological or artistic uh, genius, it was a spiritual genius. Uh, and I can't tell you how many Jews I met in Sfat who said that they were seekers like me. You know, they found Judaism, I'm going to be completely blunt here, if bluntness is permitted on Judaism Unbound. The most permitted. If it's a Jewish podcast, there must be bluntness and interruption <laughs> and food. Like, where's the food? That, that's a 21st century problem that has not yet been solved. Um, anyway, people who were disenchanted with Judaism as it was practiced as they knew it and went seeking other spiritual traditions, whether it's Buddhism, it's very popular, or Hinduism, even the Sufism. Um, and I met many people who were on their way to or from India or China or Japan in search of this spiritual fulfillment, but found what they were looking for in Sfat. Um, you're probably familiar with a book by Arya Kaplan named Jewish Meditation. By the way, do you know the definition of Jewish meditation? According to him? Or in the lotus position and quietly contemplate the fact that your children won't amount to anything. <laughs> um, there is a real tradition of, um, of Jewish meditation that goes back centuries. Um, and that's a very – Jewish meditation by Arya Kaplan is a very popular book in Sfat because w when people found that they could get that, that – really that heart-based spirituality to go along with the head-heavy Judaism – they were very contented, uh, content to, to stay in Sfat. And um, there are a lot of expats there, a lot of artists, a lot of, uh, you know, I, I, met, I met one, one man, David Friedman, who was an ultra-Orthodox Jew 
um, became disenchanted with that. Uh, he's also an artist, finds himself in spot now, and he, he calls himself an ultra-paradox Jew, <laughs> which I really like. So, you know, I've always been in my writing and in my life, I've always been interested in places that are outside of the norm, that are a little bit off the map or even off the planet in some ways. Well, I'm thinking about if we accept as a premise, at least, that Judaism is in need of some kind of re-engineering, some kind of corrective, and that and that such a thing might happen in a place of genius, whether that place is a physical place like Tzfat or Silicon Valley, or one of the questions that I wanted to explore with you was, could we think of the internet as a new place uh, that might be a place of genius? Maybe we should go back a little bit and understand, at least from you, I'm reflecting on it from this vantage point, what you think you really found to be the important criteria to be thinking about in the geography of genius. These creative places, these genius clusters, as I call them, um, they've been all over the world uh, and throughout history. They just, they pop up. You know, it could be Florence and Renaissance Italy, uh, ancient Athens, of course, some lesser known places such as Edinburgh, which was the heart of the Scottish Enlightenment in the late 18th century, a city called Hangzhou in China, which in the 12th and 13th century was the biggest city in the world and the most creative by far. Even Calcutta in India uh, enjoyed its moment in the sun, um, something called the Bengal Renaissance in the late 19th, early 20th century. So there, there's no, no culture has monopoly on these, these genius clusters, but they all do have a few things in common. And uh, one is they, they're almost always cities, right? If it takes a village to raise a child, as the old African proverb goes, it takes a city to, if not raise a genius, to make a genius. There's something about the, the interaction opportunities, as um, some urbanists like to call it, uh, that go on in a densely populated area. Think of it as, as molecules in, in either a large container that are not really going to collide with each other very often or in a very tight space where these molecules are colliding more frequently and therefore more likely to create new combinations. And these places also tend to be crossroads for different cultures and different ideas. You know, in Athens, they were great sailors and explorers, and they went off to Egypt and Mesopotamia, and they either borrowed or stole ideas, depending on how generous you're feeling, and they brought them home and they perfected them. You know, Plato said what the Greeks borrow from foreigners, they perfect. There's, there's something to that. So they're uh, cities, they're crossroads. They have a degree of tension to them. Orson Welles famously said of Switzerland, 500 years of peace and democracy and stability and what have they brought the world, but the cuckoo clock, um, which is actually a German invention, so not even that. But I argue there actually there's a requirement for some moments of chaos, but at the very least, some tumult going on. But when it, when it gets down to it, Dan, the, the, the key ingredient, and this is true for creative people as well as creative places, is one single thing. And it's, it's incredibly sounds incredibly simple but and obvious, but it's important, and that is openness to experience. You must be open to experience. If you're not open, and open to the experience, broadly defined, you're not going to innovate. Also, if you are fully invested in the status quo, you're probably not going to innovate. You know, if, you're, if you're the king of the castle, uh, you're probably not going to make a more innovative castle you know, because you're fully invested in it. I'm curious about a few things related to the title Man Seeks God. So first off, um, I actually recently read God in Search of Man by Abraham Joshua Heschel, and I'm 
I am curious if that was intentional or if there's an, an inversion happening there. But the other thing I'm curious about is that you didn't title it Man Seeks Religion or Man Seeks Meaning or Man Seeks Holiness, but you titled it Man Seeks God. So I'm curious if in the seeking for God that you embarked on, you found God or you found perhaps some other things in these various cultures, some of which by the sound of it might have been centered in God and some of which might have been centered in other forms of holy experience. I guess I'm using the term God somewhat metaphorically, but not entirely. Um, Also, the other words you suggested, such as meaning, spiritual fulfillment, those those words are, are good but they don't have the punch of God, of one syllable of uh, everything it represents. And of course, the book opens with me having this health scare at the hospital and and thinking I'm going to die and possibly in this nurse leaning over and whispering in my ear, have you found your God yet? She didn't say, have you found your spiritual fulfillment yet? Mm. Have you found your existential meaning yet? She said, have you found your God yet? And because I have so many friends I'm here in Washington, D.C., a lot of liberal friends, agnostics for the most part, who are turned off by the word God. I just wanted to put it up front. You know, I didn't want to sort of cop out and and come up with some wishy-washy words. I mean, this notion of people, and I hear this from so many people, they say they're spiritual but not religious. I have not yet heard anyone describe themselves as religious but not spiritual. I'm gonna I'm gonna look for our show notes. I believe I read an article with that title that I'll that if I find it I'll send you away. But 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 it was it was striking because it was so rare. And you're right. You're totally right. But I feel like when I was reading Man Seeks God, I I thought that the way that you described, I think at one point you called it OCD Judaism, or that the idea that it was all about. Um, doing all these things and following all these rules, at least that was your experience of it, and that it actually wasn't activating that spiritual need in you. I find a lot of lapsed Jews are lapsed for this reason. I'll just be blunt here. They they find Judaism to be a, a bunch of rules that you have to follow, and you have to follow to the letter, not necessarily the spirit. And if you don't, um, you're a bad Jew, and bad things will happen to you. You know, it wasn't until I really delved into Kabbalah, into this whole notion of kavanah or intention, which resonated with me as, of course, it it, it seems so self-evident, you know, you can't just go through the motions. But I think too often we as Jews are are going through the motions. And um, there's a a lot of shortcuts go on and a lot of assumptions are made that people know the meaning. And there are Jews who do. Who are, who are who are following the letter and the law, the letter and the spirit of, of these uh, mitzvah, who get it, um, but a lot of us don't, and we feel like there's this sort of secret. I want to say cabal because the word cabal comes from Kabbalah, which I find fascinating, but that's has negative connotations now. But the secret club to which the rest of us are not invited. But it's funny, like one of the things that struck me the most in your section on Kabbalah and on Tzfat in 
Mansi God was that you kept talking about these people who to outward appearances are very religious Jews, right? In their dress and their way they talk about God. And you kept saying about numerous people, but they don't go to synagogue very often, or they try to go to synagogue as little as they, they can, because that's not where they're finding the spiritual uplift that they're seeking. And it's so interesting that I think it would be very surprising to a lot of people that uh, are sort of, quote, lapsed Jews. You know, they go to synagogue, and they don't find it very inspiring, but they sort of assume there's this cabal of people who do and they're not really fitting in. And maybe that's true, but there's also this other group of people who believe even more. They believe so much in some way that, that, that the synagogue isn't working for them either. So about a year ago, when we launched the podcast, we actually launched it with a kind of uh, 10 episode opening that that tried to track the books of the Torah. Uh, and, and Exodus came very early on. Uh, and we talked about with we talked with uh, Rabbi B'nai Lappi, who's got this whole idea of of how periodically through Jewish history, our stories have crashed. And then there's been a small group that kind of uh, rebuilds the story in a new way. There's a, a there's a group that tries to stick with the old thing and a and a very large group that, that leaves. Uh, but there's a group that that kind of tries to rebuild it. And, and um, you know, in thinking about the leaving, we actually were, were struck with the similarity to uh, Albert Hirschman's idea of exit voice and loyalty that 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 leaving is actually a form of expressing dissent. And Adding this to the picture, now that we think about, okay, what happens after you leave, you know, after Passover, now you start wandering in the wilderness and what happens? So you talked about how people who were uprooted were the people who were often in these places of genius and did a lot of the heavy lifting. And I'm thinking... I'm trying to I'm trying to sort of put that together with the situation that we're facing as a Jewish world where I think that we have a lot of uprooted people, right, who are interpreted by the some of the organized institutions of the community as disloyal people who have left or perhaps people who don't really understand what it's all about and are not really listened to as dissenters. So fine, they're not going to be listened to as dissenters. And now the question becomes is there how can they become actors? How can they become the the new creators? And one of the pieces that has seemed to be missing, but that Lex and I have been more and more realizing maybe it's the internet, is that there hasn't been a place where those people could find one another and could gather. And one of the things that we get we get in terms of feedback on our podcast is people say, Oh wow, I didn't know anybody else was thinking the way that I am. Couple thoughts. One is, and I say this as someone who's been traveling all my life. Travelers, wanderers like myself, um, I think we're we are running away from something. That that actually is is true. We're you're running away from something, but you're simultaneously running toward something else. But you may not know what it is. Nobody just wants to run away to nothingness, the void, um, even the desert, as empty as it is has something there, has some life. Um, so, and, and maybe it's a way station, as it was for the Jews on the way to the promised land. They spent 40 years wandering. Um, so people who are, if they are refugees who are leaving a place, they are fleeing from something, but they're fleeing towards something. But what, usually what you're fleeing from is more clear cut than what you're fleeing to. So I think that's a pretty good analogy for, say, um, disenchanted Jews who are fleeing from the orthodoxy, small o, of Judaism and are looking for something else, but they don't know what it is or where it is. And that's why, you know, in my research for Man Seeks God, 
I, I, time and again, I met two groups of wanderers, spiritual seekers, uh, disenchanted Jews and Catholics. It was Jews and Catholics everywhere I went um, who were the, 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 the Sufis and the, the Buddhists and, and because they're, they're looking for the meaning that they didn't find in their own faith. And I, as I suggested before in the case of Tzfat, I think many would be delighted if they couldn't find what they were looking for within the confines of their own religion that they were born into. Um, but Judaism doesn't seem particularly welcoming to that, partly because, look, it's 5,000 plus years old, you know? Um, it, it's, it's, you know, like any older person, it becomes set in its ways, less flexible. The encampments have been set up and walls have been built around them. You know, as you you're probably know more than I do, that, that there are exceptions. There's Reconstructionism, there's Jewish renewal. Um, they're hard, you know, they're, they're hard to find. I mean, sitting here, I, I could name, I could name three, four, five synagogues within a five-minute drive or a 20-minute walk of my house, but I wouldn't know where to find the Jewish renewal people or, or other groups like this or the Kabbalists. Um, so it's the, to get to your final thought there about the internet, um, I, I have written about this where the, the people, because people always say, I, you know, I write books with the word geography in the title and isn't geography dead. And I think no, but uh, for, first of all, I do think that place still matters a lot. And number two, I think the internet is a kind of place, whether it's the place where Judaism 2.0 was born, I, I don't know. But let's say that it is, uh, just to just to follow that thought, just if it is, what would it have to embody in order to sort of meet the criteria of giving rise to genius as you think about it, as you've looked at it? So if I was going to create a genius cluster, creative place, but one with the, the intent of creating Juda Judaism 2.0, what would it look like uh, online? Um, well... Not to be difficult about this, but there's a problem from the outset when, when you're setting out a specific engineering a place to produce a certain end, that's immediately a problem. Look at all the attempts to replicate Silicon Valley. I mean, Thames Valley in England, Silicon Oasis somewhere in the Gulf countries, they've all failed. There have been dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of attempts to do this because they're not organic. They're they're you know, attempting to sort of top down as opposed to bottom up to, to create something new. So to the extent that you're saying we're going to accomplish this in this online space, that's a problem. So it'd have to be very freewheeling. I would say there shouldn't be an agenda other than exploration. Uh, number two, you know, you would have, I think, the three Ds that, as I sort of sum up in my book, the three Ds of all creative places. Uh, diversity, discernment, and disorder. By diversity, I really do not mean ethnic diversity. Uh, oftentimes, I really mean intellectual diversity. Now, oftentimes, they go together. People from different ethnic backgrounds bring something different to the table. But you can have people of different ethnic backgrounds who are not diverse in their conceptions and their intellectual apparatus at all. Um, so you need to have uh, a diversity of viewpoints. You need to have discernment because... This idea that 
oh, we're going to create something new where anything goes. All ideas are equally good, man. No, that, that does not work. Um, that's not what happens in Silicon Valley. In Silicon Valley, the dirty little secret is it's a brutal place. It's not only where ideas go to be born, it's where they go to be killed mercilessly, you know. If you have a bad idea in Silicon Valley, you'll know it and you'll know it quickly. So, you know, a good um, example is a, a quote from, from Linus Pauling, two-time Nobel Prize winner, uh, was, was asked by uh, a student, you know, Dr. Pauling, how do you come up with so many good ideas? And he said, well, it's easy. I come up with lots of ideas and I throw away the bad ones. Um, so that discernment is an essential piece of the puzzle. So this, this utopia that we're trying to create would have to have um, those two elements plus the third element, and maybe with Jews this would be the easiest part, that element of disorder and chaos. Um, if you've ever been to a meeting with a bunch of Jews, um, there's a little bit of disorder there. But, but seriously, you need to be shaken up. You can't have too many rules. Maybe that's what 40 years in the desert was all about. That's my reading of it, um, is the 40 years was, you think you want the promised land? Maybe you don't really know what you want. Maybe you don't really want it enough. Maybe you're, you're not clear enough about this. Um, maybe you don't know. So that I don't know state is important. And for Jews who are so learned and so much people of the book and about knowledge and sometimes about being right, Maybe we don't have enough of that I don't know, enough of that ignorance and that willingness to say I don't know. When's the last time you asked a rabbi a question and their answer to your question was I don't know? That's a rabbi I would want to follow. I love that you said that. I've, I, so I'm in rabbinical school and I've made a conscious effort to say I don't know what I don't know because I, a few years back, was learning my way through you know the Mishnah, the first part of the Talmud, and one time... They quoted this rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov, who was talking about something and he literally said, I'm not, I don't know. He just says, I don't know. And it's in there. It's, it's striking because it never happens besides that. But, but I loved that. And, and I've always thought of him as, you know, a kindred spirit. There, there's a few points that you brought up earlier that really got me thinking and excited. And, um, so uh, just to follow up, you mentioned first off that Oftentimes, at the beginning of important explorations, it's you don't know where you're going. Um, you don't know what the end point is, and that there there can't be too many rules. And one rule that I think a lot of people have either consciously or subconsciously adopted and and held onto for a long time that may be evolving is the idea that we are that that human beings sort of have a maximum of one religion. That we have, that we are required to house ourselves entirely in one religion. And what I think is really cool about your book is that, so you talk about open, being open minded. You immerse yourself in Man Seeks God in all sorts of religious traditions. And in order to do that, you have to come at it from the preconception that you're sort of allowed to, that, that all of these are, are, are open to exploration, even if you weren't born into them. And so I guess I'm wondering, do you think that there may be, because like, you also said at a certain point that you were looking for, looking to find a home, a religious home that felt right to you. And I'm actually curious if the model is going to continue to be people trying to find one home, or if they might be spiritually homeless, but have a lot of sort of guest houses, if we're going to extend the metaphor. So uh, I, I have some mixed 
feelings about this. Um, I, I conclude Man Seeks God with the, the notion that um, I'm trying to create what I call an Ikea God, some assembly required, that, you know, you can cobble together, you know, the best parts from these different, or at least the ones that appeal to me, they're not all going to appeal to you, but from the parts, you know, the, the meditation of Buddhism or this practice of the Sufis or even the service aspect of, of the Christians, for instance, who are very service-oriented. My thinking has evolved since the book came out, I have to be honest. I think, yes, you can borrow from different wisdom traditions, uh, and meditation is a good example, because Buddhists don't require complete uh, loyalty only to their faith. They don't. If you want to meditate, you can meditate. You don't need to be an ordained Buddhist to meditate. But I think as an individual, you need to have one, a foundation. You need to, I think a better example, instead of uh, couch surfing and hopping around is, uh, you've got one home, that's your spiritual home, but you've got different artifacts in it. Um, so uh, you can have these different artifacts in your home, but it's still your home. And you can take vacations occasionally and go to India and go to Japan. But I think you need the foundation. That's sort of what I've come around to. Otherwise, you can end up essentially homeless. But I, I am amazed, though, at, at how parochial even the most learned rabbis and people from other religions can be. Um, you know, talk to them about Judaism. They have something to say about everything. And then when you suggest, you know, oh, this aspect of Judaism, um, this Jewish, Jewish practice is also something, there's a parallel in Buddhism they don't necessarily want to hear that or they have nothing to say about it or it's outside of their wheelhouse. So it's therefore alien. And I think that's kind of sad. Um, I think there, there, you look at the world's religions, there are lots of similarities in the religious practices, whether music, for instance, so many religions feature music, um, the, the rituals, there's often water involved, you know, think of just between a mic, the similarity between a mikvah uh, and uh, a baptism. There's water involved, the elements. Um, and the thing is, it's okay to draw those parallels and not feel so insecure about your religion that you're not able to see the connection with others. So in, in thinking about both of these books that we're talking about, it didn't really occur to me until we started to have this conversation, but I'm struck by the distinction between a seeker and a genius. You know, and when, as you were talking about people that are seekers, it feels to me like a seeker essentially imagines that there's something out there that's already there that somebody else has created, and I'm dissatisfied with where I am, and so I'm going to go out and look for something that else that I can connect to. Whereas a genius, I think, has an approach that says, I don't assume that, that there's anything out there that I can connect to. I'm feeling alienated from where I have been, and my sense is that I'm going to go out there and create the new thing. And I wonder how that lands on you. And I also wonder if when we think about religion or culture, if there's a sense in which maybe we overassume that the task is to become a seeker rather than to become a genius and to try to create something new as opposed to, to looking for what, maybe what was already there or maybe what's somewhere else. That's a good point. Although the act of seeking is, is probably more creative than you think. Merely, you're not just, as a seeker, you're not merely passive. You know, you're not merely, say, if you're a spiritual seeker, you're not, you're not merely, oh, I'm just going to try on this religion in a passive way, and like the way you try on a piece of clothing and see if it fits. Um, 
you're actually you're you're actively uh, engaged in it. You know, even the act of perception, um, such as uh, eyesight, we now know through lots of studies that it is a very active process. That you don't just receive the image. If you're looking at me on a screen, you're not just receiving it. There's a lot going in in your brain uh, to not only process it, but to create it in the way you're creating the image. So I don't think the distinction is quite as big as you say. I think seekers are are creative as well. Um, whether they can go as far as to create their own religion, I think that's a, that's a, a tall order. Um, and if every seeker built their own religion, uh, you know, we would have seven billion religions on the planet, and we might as well have none. A religion of one is not a religion, really. It is a, I'm not sure what it is. It's, it's interesting, a, conver- a, a conversation and a, and a monologue. So I don't think you have to create a religion out of whole cloth. And even the geniuses, you know, I, I alluded earlier to the Greeks who would go off and borrow from the, the, the Mesopotamians and the Egyptians and perfect it. So often you see that that's the case with genius. Yes, they're, they're making a, a leap, but it's a leap standing from somewhere. You know, Isaac Newton famously said when he was asked how we can see so far, he said, it's easy, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, famous expression. Even the genius is part seeker and the seeker's part genius. As you emphasized the the Greeks, I, I was thinking about how we've actually talked very briefly on the show in the past about how... But how maybe Judaism actually has historically gone through a similar process and that a lot of the traditions that we think of as deeply Jewish actually originated in some other culture, whether we're talking about in biblical times with with societies around us in the Middle East that we, you know, gravitated to some. And then, you know, we we came up with Jewish branding for it. We, we came up with a a way to Jewify, for lack of a better term, a, a ritual that came originally from somewhere else. And, and it's not just in the Bible. I mean, we can look even to rabbinic times and we can look, um, we've talked about how even holidays like Purim or Hanukkah, Hanukkah especially, we spoke about how, you know, this idea of a, of a holiday devoted to light in the winter is not something that Judaism came up with first. And so maybe there is even in Judaism, this tendency towards finding the excellent, spiritually fulfilling, interesting elements of other traditions and bringing them into our context and putting a spin on them. I guess I'm curious from your perspective, what what maybe the challenges of that are and, and maybe if there's any anything problematic that may arise about if you were going to actively look to other cultures to like take the, you mentioned stealing ideas before, like how, how do we engage in this cultural sharing in ways that don't verge on stealing ideas? And I guess more broadly, how do you think about the idea of, you know, sharing across difference as it relates to Judaism and other world traditions? I think that um, Judaism as one of the oldest, not the oldest, but one of the oldest religions in the world, there's a tendency to believe that you're so generous, that you are so original, that you were the first and that there you didn't borrow from anywhere. And so I find Jews, uh, as opposed to say Baha'i, which have only been around since the 19th century, and they're very open about their borrowing from other places, but, but Jews tend to not buy into the notion that, that Judaism is or syncretistic 
or anything other than Judaism, pure and simple. Well, there's no such thing as a pure religion. They all were borrowing from here and there. And I think that's okay. I think that's perfectly fine. As far as, as doing it now, I think you have to find a way to meld it, to, to ground it in your own faith, you know, not to just swallow it whole. I mean, meditation is, is a good example. Um, there's so many different ways of meditating, all with essentially the same objective, you know, to still the mind, to cultivate positive thoughts of loving kindness, um, to turn off the, the monkey brain, monkey mind, as it's been called. Um, and there are ways to do it in the Christian faith, certainly in the Buddhist and Hindu faiths. Um, so if you're a Jewish person who's really curious about meditation, you could go to a Buddhist temple or one of the meditation halls that are in every city across the country these days and do that. But wouldn't it be better if you could learn it from a Jewish perspective? Again, in Arya Kaplan's book, Jewish Meditation and other books like it, they point out that meditation has a long tradition in Judaism, but it's kind of gone dormant. And sort of meditation is associated with those Eastern religions, especially with Buddhism, but not Jews. You know, with Judaism, it's associated with being people of the book, reading, studying. You know, there's a book on my shelf, which I dip into now and then, called Jewish with Feeling by uh, the head of Jewish Renewal, who died recently, and helped me out with his name. Zalman Shachter Shalomi. And um, I thought, when I picked up the book, which is a, a good book, oh, why do we need a book called Jewish with Feeling? Shouldn't that be just a given that you're Jewish with feeling. It's, I don't think it's just clever marketing. I think, although it's that too, I think it's touching on something that a lot of Jews feel that so much of Judaism is without feeling. So let's come up with a book called Jewish with Feeling. I'd like to see the day where there's no need for a book called Jewish with Feeling. It's a given. But again, I think, yeah, borrow from other places, but don't just borrow and clump on, you know, merge it with, with your faith by finding, and you will find if you dig, the common roots. Meditation, again, is a good example. I'm thinking about, right, how might we try to make there be more disorder in the Jewish world, right? More diversity. Again, that's happening. That's something that we've talked about a lot on our show, the, the, you know, that, that the Jewish, uh, you know, many, many parts of the Jewish establishment have raised concerns about intermarriage and other sorts of uh, ways of there being diversity. But we've actually tried to embrace that on this show as, as a source of strength and possibility. And actually having sort of read your book, it's giving me a language to, to talk about some of that. I mean, I'm going to throw it back to you a little bit. I wonder, I wonder what you think. Like, there is, you know, and the rabbi at our synagogue talks about this. He's essentially the referee, that there are these competing factions, you know, the traditionalists and the reformers within a conservative synagogue, this is, okay? So some people, myself included, want to think, see things loosened up. Um, change, jazzed up, whatever you want to call it. Um, but there, there are traditionalists. And let's, let's be honest here, that is what a lot of people find comfort in the traditions. And if you mess with them too much, people are not going to be happy. So every innovation has to be recognizable. Um, wh what do you think of the struggle between the, the importance of tradition versus reform. The fact that you have this podcast uh, indicates that you are almost by definition self-selecting your, your reformist, not reformed, but reformist, and that you want to see changes. Otherwise, you don't start a podcast and talk about these issues, right? 
Well, you might start a t- podcast and talk about them, but but from a more conservative uh, point of view. But yeah, you're no, you're right. I mean, so so at least for me, as I've been kind of standing outside of this conversation and thinking about it, it's like I kind of wish that your next book would be the timing of genius or something like that. You know, meaning that you've looked at these different places in which genius has arisen, and I'm curious about like the same place over a period of time, you know, and whether there are times that call for genius and there are times that call for incremental changes. So I do address some of the issue of timing in my book, The Geography of Genius. And I have an answer for you. You may not like it. And that is that these genius clusters have often blossomed soon after a time of upheaval and destruction. An example is Florence, you know, blossoming around 1500 uh, or slightly before actually uh, in Renaissance Italy, 50 years before that. Not more than 50 years was the the Black Death, the bubonic plague that wiped out a third of the city's population, decimated it really, but sort of destroyed the social order, or at least loosened it significantly so that there was more movement and something good came out of it. So sadly, oftentimes you need to see something bad happen for something for this flourishing to happen afterwards. I mean, the, the status quo gets very comfortable. And as long as you're too comfortable, um, you're not going to change. So maybe there needs to be some sort of crisis in Judaism. Um, hopefully not too bad, but enough to trigger change. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I guess the question in our mind is whether we're living in such a period, right? I mean, and, and here I'm not talking about the Holocaust, uh, although that too, right? But one of the things that we've been talking about also in terms of um, cultural change, right? Things that uh, religious change, right? Things that actually take many, many, many years. Where should we locate that that destruction? Uh, and whether that's a negative destruction like some like the Holocaust or a destruction of a way of being like the Enlightenment, right? Is is was a destruction of a way that you could be Jewish that was closed off from some of the that vast knowledge. And and you know, you we we're wondering, for example, whether the internet it plays a role in sort of accelerating that now, right? In the sense that when you have access to all the world's information, doesn't that in some ways destroy the position of the rabbi as that storehouse of knowledge? No, I'm going to have to disagree with that because I I think we conflate data with information, information with knowledge, and knowledge with wisdom. Yes, I have all the access to all of Jewish teachings right here, click of a button, but I don't have the wisdom. It doesn't provide wisdom. But if if your question is, is the internet the great disruptor? Is it it the bubonic plague of our time? Um, I don't know, but I will say this. There's always enough feeling of being unsettled as a Jew I think is a good thing. Um, So that keeps us on our toes. And I don't know if we need to have another major disruption for there to be Judaism 2.0. And and I don't think the internet, uh, you know, people were saying this about the the political realm too, that the media will now be knocked off its throne by uh, all these social media. And look what we have now. We have a system that's not necessarily better. 
Uh, so in closing, I just I'm wondering if you might have some advice for us, not so much based on the topics of the books that you've written, but based on the approach that you've taken in writing them. Uh, advice both for us and for our listeners, because I feel like where I really felt a kindred spirit in you was somebody who sort of has a big question and goes off on this long quest to just try to gather ideas and ultimately maybe put them together, uh, but is willing to sort of take that over the long term and not look for a quick and easy answer. And I'm curious if you could share some of your experience in doing that and what you might advise folks, whether us or our listeners who are going to be doing that for Judaism. Almost always, even with the oddest, in quotes, religions or spiritual traditions or places for that matter, where they just appear to be doing things so differently that I just, you know, my cultural alarm bells are going off. Hey, hey, this is weird. I stop and pause and ask, what are they getting out of it? And human beings are always do things with some kavanah, some intention. They're always getting something out of it. Even what appear, may appear to be the most horrific practices, there is at least an explanation of something they're getting out of it. Now, there's something may not be worth the price, but often it is. And maybe, just maybe, we can extract the good stuff and leave the bad behind. I think that is possible. It is possible to do a cultural transfusion, not an entire culture, but bits and pieces of it into the body politic and into the body of Judaism. I love that. I love that phrase, cultural transfusion. Just as we arc towards the close, were there any final thoughts about your books or just applying some of these thoughts to the world of Judaism that you wanted to bring to the table? I mean, I guess I am hopeful that Judaism can evolve and that people like me who, who go off and try on eight different religions can come back home to Judaism and that that coming back home is not a, with resignation. Do you know what I mean? It's not, oh, well, these are my people, you know, <laughs> this is where I was born. This is where, you know, but it's it, with, with a sense of enthusiasm. And that's what has driven creative geniuses um, throughout the ages. I mean, there's always, you can't really be a complete pessimist and be a genius. You know, you may have a grumpy exterior, but somewhere inside, you're hopeful about the future. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this uh, episode. It was really great to have you and a real honor and a treat. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed this. Thanks again to Eric Weiner, today's guest and author of two books, uh, Man Seeks God and The Geography of Genius, that were really fantastic fuel for a conversation today. So thanks again. We wanted to close out this episode in the same way that we always do, which is by encouraging you out there to be in touch with us. And there are a few ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can always head to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can contact us via email at lex at nextjewishfuture.org and dan at nextjewishfuture.org and the final plug we like to make is that you can always give us a donation to support us financially and you can do that at judaismunbound.com donate so thanks so much for listening and with that this has been judaism unbound <laughs>